I'm Amy Pruitt. I'm Lisa Dumas. I teach Ayurveda and yoga. I teach yoga. I'm a yoga therapist in training, and I offer transformational coaching. But that's just part of the story. We're moms, daughters, wives, and friends. We're always learning, and we've both experienced healing by what we teach. And the intention of this podcast is to offer you our favorite tools from the traditions and sciences that support us as we navigate the realities and stressors of modern life. Each week, we'll share stories, answer your questions, and talk to others who inspire us. Welcome to the Radiant Warrior Podcast. Yoga and Ayurveda to reclaim a courageous heart. So as the name of this podcast suggests, this is the one about alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, Amy and I are going to share a lot about our journey with alcohol. It's similar. We have different approaches, but, you know, I thought maybe we'll convey before we get started. I know we both feel this way that there is this yogic idea that there's no right or wrong or good or bad. It's about the choices that we make and then the consequences of those choices line up after the choices. And I think it's important to say before we start a conversation like this, because the subject of alcohol is tricky. It's fraught. Um, A lot of us have addiction in our family. We know people who struggle with addiction. We ourselves may struggle. That's an easy thing to do in this society. We are craving beings, you know, we're wired to, to seek pleasure and to move away from pain. And alcohol really seems like a good idea for that until, mm-hmm. until maybe it doesn't, right? Yes. It works until it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to share our stories. We're going to share where we're at. At the end of this conversation, we're going to share some tips that we have that has helped to support us where we are on this path at this point. And if you're questioning at all your relationship with alcohol, I think this conversation might be a meaningful one. Amy and I, you know, you and I were all about that. You know, we talk about a lot that we're questioning our every thought and our every habit. I don't want to do anything on autopilot, even though I know that's the human condition. We're doing so many things based on our unconscious and, and we do so many things based on things that we don't know or we haven't really looked at. And so even if we're just at that point, when it comes to any habit that we have, anything that may not be serving us, if we're at least in the process of figuring out why we're doing it and what it offers us and if it's helping or hindering us in our life, you know, I think that's a good thing for everything, for everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we'll probably start with you in that you are the one that has made the strongest choice about this. And it's one of the first things that I came to know and love about you. We've shared how we met at a somatic coaching training a couple of years ago. And at our first in-person module, we were 30 women in a circle and we were asked to create our intentions for the breadth of the year-long course And everybody went around and talked about something that they're going to commit themselves to dearly. And when it came to you, you proclaimed something and you just got the biggest response. So why don't you share what what you intended? So prior to us meeting in person at this, at our opening retreat of this program, I had been questioning my relationship with alcohol for, for, I don't, maybe a couple years. I knew that it wasn't working for me anymore and had tried to put rules around it or moderation or breaks and it still wasn't working. And it was something in my life that... I was questioning frequently. We went to this opening retreat um, where you and I met. Our leader said, 
how I remember it, she said, what is the next hardest thing that you are going to do when you go home? Mm -hmm. That's right. I was like, oh shit, (laughs) this is it. This is the time where I'm going to have to do this. It was the first time that I felt like I could maybe succeed in removing alcohol from my life because I was surrounded by the support of all the women there and knew that if I made this proclamation, I was going to made this proclamation publicly. I was going to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. I just remember it getting closer and closer and closer (laughs) to my turn. And people were putting out there some heavy stuff, some intense things of the next hardest thing they were going to do. I just knew it was now or never. And I was not going to have this level of support again. And I needed to take advantage of that. Mm. And so when it got to my turn, I said, the next hardest thing I'm going to do when I get home is I'm going to quit drinking. Just got the most amazing response from this beautiful circle of women and knew that it was the right time, the right place that the universe had aligned and that this was it. This was my time and this is what I was going to do. And it was going to be hard because alcohol was definitely a thread throughout my adult life that was a constant. Yeah. We're going to get into our stories with it and where it began because so many women of our generation share a similar story that in the beginning, it almost felt like we didn't have a choice. But I do want to comment on that intention that you set and the choice that you made in front of us all. And I think one of the reasons that you got that enormous response is that that was a real golden shadow for for me, for sure. Because I think many of us are questioning and have tried to perhaps put it down and it hasn't exactly worked. And there's so many elements working against us. During the last podcast, we talked about this imbalance that we feel as women in this world where we get validation and acknowledgement from achievement and success and striving and productivity and scratching another item off the to-do list. That's not always in keeping with our nature and what offers us vitality. So when we sink into overwhelm and burnout and we don't have any energy left, you know, we have the messaging that, well, it's wine o'clock now. Mm -hmm. So now everything will be better. And again, I'm not here, I'm really, I'm not here to make anything bad or good or anyone bad or good because I'm right here in the boat with everyone else that's in the midst of questioning. But it's such a challenging thing. And I think that many people wish for freedom from it. And so how long have you been free of it now? Over two years, going on two and a half years. I have so many questions for that process because you and I haven't really talked about this very much. It's the other thing that I really admire about you is you have practiced this new way of being very personally. So I really appreciate you speaking about it today. It's not only going to be really inspiring and helpful for me, but I know for so many. Mm -hmm. So back to the beginning, how was alcohol first sort of introduced in your, in your home and your, in your world when you were a kid and then take me to the first drink? So alcohol was not a dysfunctional thing. When I was a child, my parents drank pretty normally. I come from Irish lineage on both sides of my family. So there is a Alcohol is culturally maybe ingrained in in our culture. So alcohol was included in celebrations or mourning or, you know. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> mourning. Now I get it. I was... Mourning like grieving. <laughs> I mean, maybe the morning, you know, you know depending on what was going on. The second thing you say is it's a <laughs> that took me a minute. I was meaning morning like grieving. Like, I did. I did like, clue yeah. into that right after the initial laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay, yeah. please go on. Yes, 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 I, I, I understand. So Irish funerals are celebrations and you eat and you drink and you celebrate. And it was very normal in my family uh, to drink. My parents did not drink to excess. They did not seem to have a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. My first drink that I can recall was in junior high and it was at a party. And I remember the first time I got drunk and I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. And I just remember that feeling vividly to this day of this long exhale. I really kind of liked that feeling mm -hmm. you know, of being buzzed or slightly intoxicated. It felt like the, like I could relax where there was a lot of tension in my home life. So I liked that feeling. Then as I progressed through high school, there was a lot of drinking in my high school. I went to a Catholic high school, predominantly maybe Irish Catholic, and we partied with alcohol every weekend. It, so binge drinking happened quite a bit in high school. And that was very normal in my high school. All the kids did it. I got pregnant at my senior year. So that stopped, you know, I didn't drink at all when I was pregnant and then quickly or shortly thereafter had my second child and didn't drink through that. When my kids were really young, I didn't, I, I was busy with them. So the partying stopped and I was busy with being a young mother and trying to pay the bills and all that. So that it kind of ebbed and flowed. And during that time it slowed down. But then as I moved into like my mid to late twenties, my kids were in school. I was remarried. We were doing well financially. Things were on the up and we had a lot more space and time to celebrate and socialize and go out and then drinking became much more prominent in my life again, back to binge drinking really on the weekends. And I live in a college town, a big university town, and we tailgate before football games like it's our job. So there, it's not unusual to like spend all day on Saturday drinking. And it's very normalized around here. A lot of the social activities where I live revolve around drinking and that's very normal. And if you want to have a social life, it would be difficult around here to do it and not partake in drinking. So my drinking ramped up again as I was in my late twenties and um, into my thirties. And that continued through my thirties, you know, whether it was going to concerts or going to dinner or going to the bars or going to football games there was always alcohol involved. And then as you know, I wasn't required to be, be available, I guess, you know, for my children, like they were teenagers or they were moving into young adulthood. I had a lot more free time. My drinking became not just on the weekends then it, it started to creep into, like you said, the wine o'clock. Mm -hmm. You worked hard all day. You deserve it. This is how you wind down. You have a glass of wine. It's very normalized in our culture to drink. Pair this wine with this dish. And when you're cooking this, doesn't it look beautiful with that glass of white wine? And wouldn't it be lovely to sit out on the patio and have a glass of wine? And the visual is very pretty. But for me, the aftermath was very ugly. As I moved through my 30s and into my 40s, I couldn't tolerate alcohol as well as when I was younger. I didn't rebound quite as quickly. And that became very shameful for me that, that I was hungover. Nobody likes a, a hungover. I, mean, I didn't like myself hungover, certainly. But I had a lot of shame and I felt like I was wasting a lot of time being hungover mm -hmm. or being sick or feeling sick and tired. And they're lost days, really. Yeah. Lost days. And I was beginning to study Ayurveda and I felt like such a hypocrite because I was 
I was studying this ancient wise science down to how you eat with the seasons and the way you eat your food and the, the subtle nuances of all these routines. And then I felt like I was poisoning. I could do all these other things really well. And then I felt like I was poisoning my body and being hung over. And I felt like such a hypocrite. And I just wanted so badly to remove this thing from my life. And it, when I wanted to remove it, it became very difficult to remove because all around me was alcohol, whether it was in my home or it was with all my friends or it's what we did for fun. It all revolved around alcohol. And it was really hard for me to do anything where alcohol wasn't right in my face. Now, being on the other side of that, I am even more acutely aware of how alcohol is just absolutely shoved down our throats, literally, wherever we go. As soon as we start to question it, it seems like we get information from everywhere about the reasons to question it, first of all. And then we start to notice where it is and perhaps our triggers and and the cues that would make us desire it. Yeah, our... Please go on though, but our stories are very, very parallel. Yeah. And I found that really interesting because I had a lot of shame around the way I drank and thought it was something not to be admired. And I thought it was something to be questioned. I didn't, I didn't have a rock bottom per se. I didn't, thank goodness I'm, didn't get arrested or hurt anybody or hurt myself or any of those things. But it was this constant dimming of my life. Mm -hmm. I just felt like I was living this life in black and white. And then, like you said, having the missed days, the lost days of feeling awful and having this thing I wanted so bad. I wanted to live this life of really yoga and Ayurveda and honoring my body and studying these ancient wise sciences. And then I would go out with my friends and, you know, get hammered and be hung over the next day. And those two didn't live in the same world for me. It was very polarizing from one end to the other, trying to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. So questioning it for a long time. I started reading secretively because everyone around me drank like I drank. And if you've ever tried to do something different than the crowd, you're immediately in the spotlight and people are wondering what you're doing and they're questioning you. Nobody questioned my drinking behavior until I quit drinking. And then I, there was a lot of questions around me and a lot of judgment around me, which was really interesting because I was doing something I perceived as healthy and to improve my life. And it was perceived negatively by a lot of people that were close to me, which was, I found super interesting. We're only judging the things that are unhealed within us. That's, that's what we're judging in other people. Totally, totally. But I had to defend myself or explain myself or give excuses to why I wasn't drinking. And people notice when you don't drink and they're all drinking, they notice right away (laughs) that you're not drinking. And then the questions start. So it was, it was very interesting. So I was reading books and I was reading articles and blogs and listening to podcasts and just couldn't make this thing happen. I would try dry January, or I would try to only drink on the weekends, or I would do sober spring or all these fads or tricks or thing, you know, hundred days without alcohol. And I'd be like, there's no way I can't do it. And felt like a failure because I couldn't remove this thing from my life that now that I started questioning it became a a bigger thing because I couldn't 
now it's a problem because I can't make this thing happen and I don't know why. And I, and now I feel like a failure and now I have more shame on top of that, that I have this thing that I don't like and I can't overcome it. That went on for probably a few years before you and I met at this retreat. And I made that proclamation that I was going to do this thing. Wow. Well, let, we'll get into what the last couple of years have been like um, as we catch up with one another. I want to share that your story resonates so deeply. There's so many different parallels. And I think probably for a lot of women listening, the shame spiral is something that we can all connect with when we tell ourselves, you know, I'm not going to drink this or eat this or, or do this this week. And then we're not able to put it down. And then when we're not able to put it down, we make ourselves feel that there's something wrong with us, that we're bad. And then we go into shame. And then that shame causes us to reach for what we're trying to put down even more. And that, that's when we might even overdo it because there's no enjoyment of it anymore. We almost want, we feel so compelled and then we just want to get it over with and have the bottle be finished. It's, it's such a cycle. I, I so relate with that. Mm-hmm. It was very similar in my in my family of origin. It I didn't I don't remember it as being dysfunctional at all. We had a, a a basement, a really fun basement, and my dad had been a musician, and my parents loved music. So I remember adult parties when I was little and loud music, and I remember lots of cocktails. They always have had a downstairs bar. But I never saw anything that made me feel uncomfortable. I always saw adults enjoying themselves, but I took it for granted that alcohol just came with that. I didn't have a bad or good around it for a really long time. In fact, it just seemed like that's that's just what you did. I didn't I didn't think twice about it, which is so different from the way my daughter is growing up. But then as I got a little bit older, I started to hear stories about how there were problems with alcohol in my extended family. And that certain members of my closer family were a little bit careful with it because it was it kind of ran in our family, I guess. And I do remember one scary moment with an uncle. I was being babysat and he came over and I didn't realize at the time that there was anything untoward or he was under the influence of anything, but I just felt uncomfortable. He wasn't really being himself. And I couldn't, he wanted to do this fun thing, Amy, of dangling me by my ankles over a second floor balcony. Oh my God. And that was just so fun for him. And, and, and what was so scary for me is that he didn't seem to recognize my fear. Like there was that total disconnect. Mm-hmm. And then I came to find out that that was because of alcohol. So that was my first inkling that, huh, you know, this, this alcohol stuff, mm-hmm. It, it could be a problem for some people, but I still hadn't categorized it as, as, as bad or evil or anything, not at all, because it was just so prevalent everywhere around. And then it was same around the same time, my parents moved us away from Vancouver, where I still felt like such a little girl in grade four. And then when we moved to this particular smaller town in the next province over, the kids there were on a much older trajectory than I had been used to. And it was just like being thrust into this alien planet of kissing and, and holding hands and, and smoking and, you know, in, in grade five. And that wasn't something that I was interested at that time. And I remember being called a prude. Uh, I remember being called frigid. I remember, you know, this boy, I think in grade seven, he shouted out, over the entire playground that I was frigid because I wasn't ready to be kissed. But once I got to junior high school, that would have been grade six when I was frigid, actually, because junior high school school, things change. But I think I would have been in eighth grade or so, and I had uh, a wonderful best friend named Andy, and he told me that in our town there was something called bush parties. Mm. This is where all the kids would go. Oh, you know, so many awful things have happened in those bush parties in this in this small town. But at that time, I didn't know that. At that time, it just sounded like this exciting, wild and free thing we were going to go do. And we rode our bikes there. And I think my parents had been out for the night and everybody was drinking. 
And I don't know what it is. Was it like this too? Because my daughter tells me it's like this as well in her school. Nobody's just drinking beer. Everybody's drinking hard alcohol, (laughs) bottles of vodka. And I don't know why that was the starter drink, but my friend Andy, he, I really felt like he wanted me to participate in this. Like it was just, it was such a great thing. I'm going to love it. It feels so good. This is what, this is what fun is all about. This is what life is all about. And so I, I had whatever it was clear in color. Of course it tasted awful. I'm sure that it was mixed with grape juice or something. (laughs) And then we rode home and I remember being at home alone and knowing that I had done something that I shouldn't have done, that I was too young to do. And I, I said, well, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to have a shower and I'll like brush my teeth and everything, but I'm just really tired and I'm just going to lay down on this couch for a while and then I'll get up and do all that. Well, of mm-hmm. course, then I just completely passed out. My mom woke me up. My mom smelled it on me, knew what had happened. I don't think anybody else ever knew. <laughs> they might now. Right. So for a while, that sort of scared me because I can so vividly remember telling myself I was going to go and take care of myself. And then I actually couldn't, I mm-hmm. couldn't really move. So that scared me for a while, but not for long. You know, then there was another get together. Parents were away at, at some girl's house, probably in ninth grade. And she had a, a few of her dad's beer. And then that was the time that I remember that I relate with yours is it did feel good to feel just silly and happy and be laughing. And I started to equate it with feeling very free. Mm-hmm. And then through high school, it was, you know, it was here and there, but I was still pretty sporty. I was really into baseball and, and figure skating. For me, it was more after high school, I went to broadcasting school in order to move into radio. And before I was even of age, I, 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 you know, I looked much older than I was. I started to go to bars and it, it wasn't even about the drinking for that. It was about meeting boys, honestly, meeting guys and dancing and having so much fun. But yeah, I have a few beer. But after, when we went to broadcasting college, it started, life started to be a party. Mm -hmm. And when I moved away and worked at my first radio station at 19 years old, and that's my first time really on my own, complete different areas, my parents and my own place to live. And you start making these new friends and every night, you know, almost every night was a party, especially on the weekends. There was the bars that we'd go to and it was all connected. It was, when I, when I look back, it was a lot of fun and it, and it does start that way for all of us. It was so much fun. I have great memories of those days living on my own and going to the bar and dancing and, and meeting people and just, you know, first glances and first dances and first kisses and a lot of Budweiser. I, I have, I do have good memories of those days. And then as I've shared, as I started to get very nervous and how, and as my nerves started to catch up with me, then I noticed that drinking was that big sigh of relief. Then I started to notice that, oh, this is actually the one time when I'm not trembling and I'm not completely perspiring and I feel more at ease. So unintentionally, I was creating a dependency. It was something that I needed in order to almost do my job. I, and a lot went into that. I, was, I felt thrust into these positions maybe before I was ready, even though there was that part of me that wanted that next opportunity and wanted to be in in the big market. I was just early 20s and on the air in a a really big city and being called to be up on stage and introduce acts and introduce bands and, and interview these enormous artists. I was at a country station. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. So like 
I have these amazing experiences where I've gotten to interview people like Shania Twain and, and Tim McGraw and Faith Hill and Brooks and Dunn and Blue Rodeo, these incredible, incredible artists. Really, it was wonderful. But the other side of that, because that was making me so nervous, I was always so anxious about it, about if I was doing a good enough job. Um, and I really wasn't getting the feedback that I was. I was always getting the feedback that I could do more, that I could do better. And that was for sure what my inner voice was saying. So after work, when I go out with my coworkers, that was the only time where I felt free of those thoughts. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a bit of a darker turn. And then I think because of over drinking and not sleeping and terrible nutrition in those first years of radio when I was really the party girl, that contributed to the first anxiety attack because we know that now that... Mm-hmm. It is, you know, alcohol is a contributor mm-hmm. and it's so easy to get into this cycle if you're attempting to quell panic attacks with alcohol that you'll wake up in the morning and you'll be hungover and the symptoms of a hangover, they just bring on more anxiousness, being dehydrated like that, uh, having a headache, having that elevated heart rate, all of this can drive you into a panic attack. And so then you just feel like you have to have more alcohol. And I did find myself in that really scary, scary cycle. And I haven't really ever shared it to that degree before. Mm -hmm. But even though there was still elements of my life living on my own, on the air, having great opportunities, meeting amazing people, having a lot of fun, there was the element of feeling so horrible so often and not able to really pull myself out of that. And then when I met the man who's now my husband, he did drink, but he was more of a mature, uh, balanced, moderate drinker. He was somebody who really enjoyed, as you were saying, and this is a thing, he, he really did enjoy red wine and the food that accompanies it. And this was kind of a new world for me because I was just a strictly beer and chicken wing girl at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like, he did introduce me to a different way of thinking about alcohol. He wasn't drinking to make himself feel better. He was drinking to make himself feel even better, I noticed. Like there wasn't anything that he was trying to change on the outside through that. And he's always been able to take it or leave it, which just drives me crazy because (laughs) that has been a little bit more challenging for me. But same thing when we decided to have a family, I, I let go of it because I read that even when you are attempting to get pregnant, it's a good idea not to have it a part of your life. And so I let it go. And I noticed that that did improve things with anxiousness as well. And let it go when I was nursing and for the most part when she was little, but then we had moved to the San Diego community. And then that's when I fell into this whole situation. And I don't know if it was going on, you were a lot younger than me when you had your babies, but there's this whole culture where the kids have a play date and the moms are drinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I guess I, I was just sort of late to the information that this might be something that is a problem. I mean, I, I mean, I have, I have a lot of regrets about that right now, to be honest, but that just seemed to be what was happening. And the kids were all having fun and there's moms having you know, white wine and champagne and then yoga though, same thing. Then, then it's this great awakening and that's how I describe my experience of coming to yoga for the first time. I was asleep. I was sleepwalking. I was going with the flow. I was responding to whatever thought ar- arose in my head. I was pleasing other people and not really questioning anything, to be honest. And then yoga and the philosophy of yoga. And it was this waking up and a waking up to everything. And the more committed my practice got, yoga teaches us that what we're doing, we may not know we're doing it, but we are. We're purifying our bodies. We're purifying our minds. 
And I started to get much more sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. And then I had a teacher who was more from the tantric lineage and she was more about you know, this idea that there's nothing bad. It's all energy. And can wine be something that is fully savored and you're very mindful with it? And she was like that with, with everything. She was like that with, with desserts and, and sweets. You know, she, For her, her teaching was let's intuitively eat let's not make any food group bad or wrong let's not move into aversion the other side of the coin of craving but let's not dive into craving either let's experience it all but from this very grateful divine present mindful place and so i shifted into that for a little while and that worked for me actually mm-hmm. and and helped me to realize how not present i had been before being creatures who love pleasure the way I'd been with drinking before is, ah, this feels good. Better have more. Right. So this new way of thinking was, oh, this feels good. Oh, but now it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Time to have water, time to stop. And, and so it was really interesting to move into a new way of being and then I would refuse to have anything to drink if anything was going on or if I was feeling uncomfortable. I refused to deal with something negative or with my own anxiety. With alcohol, it would be something that I would relegate only to once you know my kid is taken care of and there, nobody needs me and I'm out at a social engagement to where I find myself now. And same, same as you, it's been several years of questioning, several years of saying, you know, I'm going to put this down and then maybe not completely following through and wondering why that was and wondering, do I have an enormous problem and uh, what am I going to do with this? To where I am now, and I guess the label of this, if we want to label everything, which I don't love to do, but I guess where I am now is like a sober, curious person mm-hmm. who lets it go for large swaths at a time and who has gone through steps to question every story that I have about drinking. Because if we really ask ourselves, okay, why are we doing this thing? Mm -hmm. We'll have thoughts, as you said, like, well, it makes an evening special. And so I let myself contemplate that. Because that, you know, I want to talk about cues and, and triggers and and these aspects of our life that really make us want to reach for that glass of wine, or maybe even it's just a habit, we do it. And unfortunately, like this man that I love and the the guy that I like to hang out with the most, he can be a little bit of a cue for me because throughout our entire relationship, it's been about getting the cookbook and buying the produce and making the beautiful meal together and matching the wine with it. That was like a really big part of our relationship. And we had this really tough economic stretch for a little bit, the two of us. And we, it was almost like there was, there was less cash to go around. And so we would stay in a lot more often. And what would make our night quote unquote special was that we would have wine with our meal in a time when we weren't really able to have a lot of the extras. So he is a little bit of a cue for me and that has nothing to do with him because he is just so supportive of me doing whatever I want to do. And, and same with him, like he is on a path of, of letting it go because he has lots he wants to do with his life and he's a really busy guy and he recognizes that he feels better without it. And we're just running out of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. As well as we happen to have a teenager who's totally militant against it. Like she's not into it. She's the one that's gone to the teenager parties as she calls them. Like she's a teenager and she calls them teenager parties. <laughs> <laughs> and she's the one taking care of everybody and, and making them water. And you know, she's just yeah. been to a couple. But, you know, that is also a big part of it is I didn't feel like I really had a choice. I don't blame my parents, but I don't feel like 
there was a choice laid out for me. It was like, when you, when you become drinking age, you drink or you drink before your drinking age. And it's a big thing to get into the bars before you're 18. It happened. The drinking age was 18. Um, where I live. I know it's 21 in there in the States. It's 19 most places here in Canada. And it was 18 in the province that I lived in at the time. And I will say the good thing about that is, especially if you're getting into the bars underage, or if you're drinking underage, by the time you're 18, like it's kind of lost some of its luster. And when it's allowed, (laughs) but when it's, when it's legal and you're 18, it's not, it does lose some of its uh, for like the the level of it being forbidden and that you're doing something against the law, or like you're being this wild teenager because it's legal then. So it does take a little bit of that away for those of us who can relate with their inner rebels like me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so fast forward to where I am now and I've gone through a few years of questioning all the stories does it make an evening special? Like, is that thought true? No. (laughs) I mean, there could also be, some might say yes, but there's also a lot of evidence for no, because we might have this beautiful dinner and then we'll have some wine and then all of a sudden I'm tired Mm -hmm. because that's the way it hits me now. Or all of a sudden one of us has an edge or a topic of conversation comes up that's uncomfortable. And now we're, as you've said, we've dimmed our light. We're not in connection with our true nature anymore. So we're more communicating with one another from our complexes, you know, from our wounds. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the many thoughts that I unconsciously had around drinking that I decided to question And it's like you just slowly change your brain because we can do that. There's something called neuroplasticity. We don't have to think the same things. It's been a long, slow road of change, but my mind is definitely in a different place around it. Yeah, for me, it couldn't work if it was going to be a slow process. I had lost the ability to know where it was going to go at the beginning of the evening, Mm -hmm. I could feel very adult-like. And this is, like you said, making an evening special or fancy or even speaking to that rebellious side. Oh, I'm such a rebel. I'm going out on a school night instead of a work night. I didn't have a stop. There was no stop really for me. I had tried all the things, the contemplation, the moderation, the intuitiveness. And for me, it just had to be nothing, Mm -hmm. all or nothing. And if I was going to remove it, it had to be nothing. Knowing that I had tried that path for a couple of years and it had not been successful. And I admire people who can drink like adults, quote unquote. <laughs> I can't do it. I, it just doesn't work for me. And how have you handled over these past two years those triggers, those the cues when it's just this body sensation of, oh, drink, time for a drink. What do you do? So many things. I I had to remove myself from situations, people, friends, activities, because they were all so alcohol-centered. And I had tried doing all the same things and just removing alcohol, and that never worked. So now I had to try a different path, and that was instead of trying to live exactly the same way I had been living before and only removing alcohol, now I had to change everything. Mm -hmm. I had to change how I socialized, who I hung out with, what time of the day we hung out. Instead of going to dinner, maybe we went to breakfast or went for tea. I lost some friends 
over it for sure that didn't or weren't able to understand that they could still be friends with me even if we didn't drink because a lot of my friendships were alcohol-centered. So socializing was very tricky. And I just had to learn that we did different things. We had to change it up. And either they maybe wanted to do different things with me, like maybe go to a yoga class or go for a walk or go for a hike. Or maybe they really were just more interested in drinking. And that was really interesting. I went to bed early a lot of nights when there wasn't anything else to do. I would just call it a day. And that was, that was very helpful. And I caught up on a lot of sleep, maybe became a little bit of a hermit for a little while. I continued to read books about drinking and alcohol by women who had walked that path before me, could really find my stories interwoven in their stories and how they, the things that they did, then I just started to do the things that they did because it seemed to work for them. And I had some teachers along the way, some yoga teachers who I just thought had so much grace and I wanted what they had come to find out that they all identified as being sober as I got to know them, which I found really interesting that I was really attracted to their practice and their way of just walking in the world. And as I got to know them more, found out that they identified as being sober. And I just found that fascinating that they had not always maybe been so graceful, but the changes that they had made in their lives brought them to this state of grace. And I wanted that. I came to a place where I decided that I didn't know any better. So I might as well do what somebody else did and maybe learn from them. Instead of trying it my way, I might try it their way. And their way involved not hanging out at the bars <laughs> and thinking that you're not going to drink or not tailgating at the football games and thinking that you're not going to drink, changing it up, not being surrounded by everyone else drinking and thinking that you're not going to be uncomfortable because you probably are going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Maybe finding a new and different social circles because there are people in the world, believe it or not, who don't drink regularly. Recognizing that it is really all around us. And it's a huge marketing, alcohol directed at women, alcohol marketing directed at women is a huge business. Maybe get off that treadmill that we're being targeted to drink with the wine o'clock and all the activities that are now so saturated in alcohol that maybe weren't in the past like the yoga and wine classes or the yoga and brewery classes and the paint and wine or paint and canvas or canvas and wine, whatever that is, the book clubs. It's a joke anymore to think of book clubs that don't include wine. For me, just recognizing that it's all around me and I need to intentionally choose activities that support my best and highest self and just be vigilant, I guess, is a word that maybe describes how I walk through the world now when it comes to alcohol, like I'm vigilant. I know that it doesn't work for me, that it can't work for me, that I am not a moderate drinker. I am a dysfunctional drinker. And if I thought that I could go back to drinking, it would not be pretty. And it's just so inspiring to know you and know how much everything has changed because I have simply known you in this life and how grounded you are and, and the wonderful boundaries that you are, that you have. And when I hear you talk about alcohol being everywhere, it's so funny. The old me whose life really revolved around alcohol, I guess, it, I mean, it really was. When I would walk into a restaurant, that's the first thing I would be scanning is, oh, who's having a drink? Like, because mm -hmm. that will make it okay. Mm -hmm. And now I'm always scanning for the people who are having water and tea. And there's more and more actually. And, yeah. then, and then I feel like I'm one of that crowd when I order something that's non-alcoholic or when I order something, when I order tea or water and that feels empowering. So I, I'm, I'm just always amazed at how we can change, but like mm -hmm. anything else, it just takes practice. And something that I recognized about myself, and I had a situation recently, and I've been telling you that I wanted to talk to you about this, and we haven't. But I haven't really, 
had drinking as a part of my life for a long time. I, 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 I teach a lot of classes and I do a lot of things and I want to feel wonderful. And I, I want to, I, as I told myself back in the days when it was hard to wake up in the morning, you know, I don't want to miss any more sunrises. So it's very exciting to, to get up and practice at sunrise and to take my dog really early. This is the life that I choose. And then my birthday came around and family was in. And listen, I love them very much, but that is a little bit of a cue for me is drinking with certain members of family, drinking with certain friends. And there was a whole evening plan for me and I had never been to this restaurant before. And it turned out that this restaurant was almost like going to a wedding. Like it, it was just um, a band and, and champagne and dancing and ABBA music playing. It, it was very, very fun. But I found myself deciding that I was going to have a glass of champagne. And then I had another. And I have to say, I felt so horrible the next day. And I, it had been such a long time that I felt the shame that we've been discussing, but I did because I'm a person who feels like you do on your birthday what you want to do more of. Now, did I also do many things during the day that were intentional that I want to do more of? Yes. But I did feel very disappointed in myself the next day because it, I didn't I didn't keep my promises. To, well, I didn't, I, I think I had told myself I was going to have a glass of champagne, but I, I just didn't feel like I had kept my integrity with myself to be completely frank here. Mm-hmm. And something that's come up from that, because I like to use all experiences as learning opportunities as you're finding, is I think that many of us, it helps a lot of us to, to label ourselves. Um, what is helpful for me is to understand that for me, yes, there is certainly an addictive piece. There always has been with me. I'm a, I'm a more, I have been, especially in the days when I was being led by my definitions, a more is better kind of person. Mm-hmm. And that peace is there and will probably always be there because we're never completely fully healed, but now I can be aware of that peace. What is helping me is the practice of sitting with the craving rather than giving into the craving. I've mentioned that word a couple of times in this podcast because yoga teaches us that this is the way of the mind. It's one of the main afflictions of the mind that causes human beings so much suffering. We're either in a state of craving for pleasure or we're in a state of aversion of something that's uncomfortable. And the way out is through. The way out is to learn to sit with it and notice the sensation of craving. And for me, what I realize is the sensation of craving was uncomfortable and I would often satiate it because of stories I have about not wanting to restrict myself and not wanting to say no to myself. And I, I deserve it and all the thoughts, right? All the thoughts of the, of the inner saboteur. And I'm not saying that some of those things that I would have are necessarily bad or wrong, but I had made a promise to myself. That's the point. This is just me. This is just an individual road that I'm talking about here. And so the practice for me lately, when it comes to other things that I, that don't work for me anymore, not because it's a fad diet or I read something about it, but because I can recognize that that doesn't feel good in my body. I can recognize that that makes me feel a little bit less vital when I consume that. When I notice that craving, I breathe and notice it and feel its discomfort. And then if you do that, it will get big and you keep breathing and watching. And then strangely, when it gets so big, all of a sudden it gets really small and it dissipates. There's actually a meditation you can do when it comes to pain with that too, is just allow yourself to watch it and notice it and allow yourself to notice it change and shift and get big and then either visualize it getting smaller or just allow it to get so big that finally it dissipates. 
and then it goes away. And then you're on the other side of it. And then from that present place, for me anyway, I can choose to replace what was perhaps the object of my craving or the habitual behavior with something else that serves me, with something else that makes me feel wonderful. Because that's what this practice offers. The way that we'll feel after a yoga class or even a brief meditation or a walk in the woods is incredible. Mm -hmm. And that's what's akin to what got us hooked on alcohol in the first place. It's sort of the same impulse that gets you hooked on yoga. It feels so good. You want more and more. So will I ever be able to change that I have an addictive personality? Probably not, but I think I can use my addictions, my addictive nature for good. That's where I'm at now. I love that. I'm sitting here listening to you with a touch of envy. It is so beautiful to think of these practices that are accessible and free and available to everybody. Alcohol was, it wasn't so much for pleasure for me. It was for relief. There had to be something else to give me relief if it was going to be replaced because I couldn't feel anymore. I just couldn't tolerate feeling. So for those who were drinking like I was to seek relief or to kill the pain, I would offer to do whatever it takes to keep you from drinking, whatever it takes, whether it is taking a hot shower, whether it is going to bed at 6 p.m. because there's nothing else to do, whether it's reaching out to friends who don't drink or finding new friends or trying new things, going to three yoga classes a day if that's what it takes, meetings, therapy, counselors, books, podcasts. I could name a hundred things that I have done to fill my time to keep myself from drinking to keep myself from using alcohol as a relief because that wasn't working for me anymore. Thank you so much. And I can attest that all of those tips are incredibly helpful when we're in that state of questioning our drinking. And for those who are um, still on the journey and you resonate when we talk about shame and you're in that questioning place, and you realize that maybe it doesn't work for you either. What has helped me so far is really getting real about what I think about drinking and writing down all of the thoughts that I have about it, that it's somehow elegant, that it's somehow special, and just question every single thought Mm -hmm. and come up with new thoughts. Another thing that I did is that I wrote down all my whys for feeling good, for not over drinking. And those were some powerful lies. And I would write them down every single day. I also have a journal that is specifically for this category in my life. And I write to the parts of myself that want it. I I write to the inner saboteur and I learn a lot about what she's actually wanting. Because if we do take the time to sit in the state of craving, we can, we come to find that there's something else that we're seeking. Mm -hmm. And I've mentioned this friend's name often and we'll have her on because she's such an incredibly talented psychotherapist and she's, she's, she has um, learned a lot in, on her path. And she learns a lot from the writer and teacher, Marion Woodman, who talks about what it means when we crave different things if we crave sweet, then perhaps it's wanting ourselves to feel sweeter, wanting more sweetness in our life because life is feeling bitter and sour. And what she has to say about alcohol, if I'm remembering this correctly, is that we're craving light. Yeah. I think that ultimately that's where we all want to be, connecting to our higher self, connecting to our true self, our true nature. I think maybe that's what got some of us into the spiral in the beginning is losing that connection to our true nature and our true self. That's why it was so uncomfortable in the end because I wanted to get back there so badly, knew I wasn't honoring my higher self by the way I was treating my body and my mind when I would 
overdrink. It took a long time for me to to get back there to remember. Oh yes, we are <laughs> we are similar there. It is in process. So many things in process. Mm-hmm. That's what these conversations are all about. Mm-hmm. Amy, I so appreciate you sharing your story today, and you're a huge inspiration to me and so many others that we know together. Enjoy your evening, and I'm on my way now. Um, headed out to upstate New York for a yoga therapy live module and then meeting my husband in Manhattan, which happened to be the first place that he told me he loved me in New York. Oh, that's so sweet. So we're we're just a, a couple of weeks away from anniversary number 20. So it'll be a little bit of a celebration for us. And I look forward to coming home and, and talking to you then. Yes, well, safe travels, my friend. Thanks, Amy. All right. Love you. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Radiant Warrior podcast. If you found it valuable, please leave us a positive review to help others find it. And please check out the Radiant Warrior podcast on Instagram and Facebook to leave us your questions and find out where you can come and practice with us next.